It's Tuesday, December 19th, 2023 from Peachfish Productions. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Who are the Houthis? If you thought they were just a ragtag bunch of missile-lobbing Arabians, you're right, they are. If you, like Lindsey Graham, said on Meet the Press a couple of years ago, thought they were not the Houthis, but these guys. Well, I think they're important in destabilizing the region. They're not helping the cause of freedom or uh, a democracy or anything else. Uh, they just toppled the, the government in Yemen by supporting the Houthis. You were wrong. But overall, Lindsey nailed them. Those guys are pains in the ass, real irritants. Don't ask me, ask the oil tankers in the Red Sea. And don't ask the oil tankers in the Red Sea because those are giant lifeless objects who don't have time for podcast interviews. Ask Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin, who agrees with Lindsey Graham in more ways than one. So in the Red Sea, we're leading a multinational maritime task force to uphold the bedrock principle of freedom of navigation. Iran's support for Houthi attacks on commercial vessels must stop. Houthi? Who's new? Whatever their name, don't impress me. Their branding is off. Their aim isn't good. Their public tough talk is more confusing than intimidating. This from the New York Times. General Mohammed al-Gadari, a Houthi naval commander, possibly Houthi naval commander, said of Sunday's strikes, quote, the waters of our land will become the graveyard of the Zionist enemy ships. That's like the Quds missile cone with a phylloxy denial system guidance system of mixed metaphors. But it just goes to show that if you have a lot of rockets, some Iranian backing, and no one between you and large boats, there is a lot of damage you could do. D4 hit J1. Or hit my Norwegian oil tanker who referred all comments to the Panamanian barge that was unreachable because it had been rerouted around the Cape of Good Hope. On the show today, Chicago faces a migrant crisis and no one of any demographic is happy. But first, Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez and her fellow youthful progressive members of Congress are the subject of Ryan Grimm's book, The Squad, AOC in the Hope of a Political Revolution. In this part of our interview, we talk Bernie Sanders, John Fetterman, and the instant paralysis that NGOs and other nonprofits faced when young staffers were asked not to be late to meetings. Ryan Grimm up next. Ryan Grimm is the author of The Squad, AOC, and the Hope of a Political Revolution, AOC, of course, being Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez. Hate to just leave her as a set of initials. And there was a lot of AOC in the first half of our interview. And there's a lot of AOC in the book. There's some Ilan Omar in the book, almost no Jamal Bowman or Ayanna Presley. And I wanted to ask Ryan about them. Let's take Ayanna Presley. She didn't come in as a socialist or a self-described socialist. So is she, I don't know, same kingdom, different phylum than the rest of the squad? Or has she changed to become more squad-like? I mean, I th- I think she she's a pretty, I think she's a really strong ally of theirs. Um and I think she's useful also to their kind of operation in the, because she has credibility with kind of you know mainstream down you know mainline Democrats. 
um, in, in the way that, you know, the other three um, or the other five don't. And so she can be sort of like a translator in, in that sense for them. Um, but yes, you, you could, uh, you could have imagined a scenario where, you know, she gets into Congress and, and sees like how particularly Rashida and, um, and Ilhan are in the barrel constantly. AOC just, you know, getting blasted by the party leadership all the time. And she just kind of slowly does the Homer thing, walking back into the bush. Yeah. And it's like, all right, now I'm a member of Congress. Now I'm good. I'm going to wait for there's a Senate seat to open up in Massachusetts. And I'm going to, and I'm going to gun for that seat that you could have seen that, but she has actually taken risks and stood by them. Um, she's just not the flamethrower that some, some of them are, but she, ha she definitely has, I, I, I would, I would say that she has been a, a genuine ally. Does she, does that work out better for her than the flamethrowing tactics do for the others? Probably. And, and she does like everybody, I haven't heard this directly from her, but everybody understands that the Massachusetts Senate seat that will eventually open up when, you know, Elizabeth Warren or Ed Markey step down. I think Markey would, is supposed to be up right in 2026. And does he run again? I mean, he's like, he'll be close to 80. She's very well positioned, I think in Massachusetts. And she endorsed Warren um, during the 2020 presidential campaign, which was a break from the other three who endorsed Bernie. But it was none of them saw it as like a betrayal of any type of you know cohesive operation. Does has Jamal Bowman's tactics, and I'm not talking about the fire alarm, but you could talk about that too. Generally positioning himself, showing up at the uh, Trump arraignment and getting into shouting matches with uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene. Do you think that served him and the overall cause? I think in some ways it does because it, uh, you know, it shows that this faction of the Democratic Party is just like the kind of MSNBC faction, you know, committed to yelling at Marjorie Taylor Greene, <laughs> yelling at Marjorie Taylor Greene. Like we can we can all agree on something, and I also think that for Bowman and Bush in particular, but for all of them, that this is authentic, genuine stuff. Right. And pre and the the fire alarm is fire alarm is wild. Yeah. I, I went to that spot the next day. And did you try to open the door incorrectly? Uh, it was it was open okay, um, when I went there, and like it was actually supposed to be open. Like it was a mistake by the sergeant at arms that it was that it was closed. Is it at all plausible that anyone could press the fire alarm to open the door? I, I, it, it's not implausible. Okay, because um, you're you're, like, you're looking at it, and it's it's the door. It's the front door of the building, and you're looking at the Capitol like. 200 yards away from you right across the street right and this is the this is the door that's always open yeah and it's like you know it, i get it. it says press door you know for 60 seconds for the for the to open um but so that that's the part i don't get is like we'll press the door then yeah um, and the other coincidence being that the exact moment this happened is when he was hoping to delay a vote well he was he was hoping to get to the vote oh okay and the fire alarms go off all the time not all the time but, they, but you have things happen right, security right. he situations was delayed happen. from getting to a vote so he the, the theory might be that he and, would have liked a little help yes and a delay in the uh that happens in canon or another house yeah. office building doesn't actually slow anything down in the capitol like because you'll have lockdowns in the house office buildings all the time and then that does but that doesn't mean anything for the capitol they just keep going about their business he was he just didn't want to uh be the jerk that like missed the vote yeah well, now he's uh, another flavor of jerk. Perhaps I'm just I'm just anticipating yeah. a campaign ad.
Yeah. Uh, a couple other questions. How does uh, Senator Fetterman's strong support of Israel, how did that change the opinion of him among members of the squad or their adherents? I think they would love it if... Uh, and Fetterman went, you know, he was he supported Sanders in 2016 um, when he was running for Senate. Um, Sanders supported him in 2018 when he was successfully running for uh, lieutenant governor. I can't remember. To, I think they might not have actually he, uh, gotten Sanders' endorsement for Senate. Or, I mean, eventually he did it in the general election. But so it wasn't like they were that, like, you know, locked and loaded buddies. Um, but I think that the, they would love, uh, the squad would love it if Fetterman was an ally on this position. Like, I think you have Becca Ballant might be the only non-person uh, of color uh, who has, like, signed on to a ceasefire. Maybe there's a, a few more by now. Um, but I think they would love a more multiracial ceasefire coalition. But yeah, I'll ask you the obverse of that question. Does it hurt his credentials among them or socialists or adherents? Yeah, it's an open question how big the kind of online progressive kind of base is. Like it's, But to the extent that there is one, um, they have, I think, fully turned on Fetterman yeah. over, over this. So then it is something of a litmus test, even though maybe it was portrayed before October 7th, portrayed as unfair that that would be a litmus test. Yeah, I think uh, it was people were, when, when Fetterman, um, you know, put out a really hawkish kind of policy position at the time, people were like, all right, you know, like he, he took some, he took some criticism because he was pretty blunt. You know, he's like, I'm not a progressive on this. I think what the squad believes on some of this stuff is abhorrent. Like he, he was... He foreshadowed his current, you know, enth enthusiastic response, but I think a lot, at the time, I'd be like, all right, well, it's he's just running for Senate. He's trying not to get nuked in a primary, and then trying not to get nuked in the general. Mm -hmm. And it's a political question. He's going to do. What he's going to do. But I think the um, the moral gravity of it has been brought home by by the ab absolute massacre underway, and that people's willingness to. Uh, you know, to tolerate compromises on it evaporated with that. The massacre of Palestinians, right. you mean, not the massacre of Israelis. Um, I do want to ask you, there's so much in the book, which obviously went to press and was maybe literally in my hands before, or a galley copy, copy was before October 7th. So much in the book about Israel politics. And um, like everything else in the book, I think you have all your facts right. But there is um, a strain of uh, thought that it was unfair for this to be a litmus test or progressives, often people of color, women of color, were being unfairly held to account for some anti-Israel policy that they never even had. And this shows up tangibly in a couple places where in an early interview after she was elected on firing line with Margaret Hoover, AOC was pressed really hard about Israel. And she essentially admitted that, you know, she she's not a policy expert on that position. She just saw uh, Gazans getting uh, shot in the legs and thought that that was wrong. And then you have, and, uh, and this is against the backdrop of AOC and Bankman Freed's fund really targeting progressives for being insufficiently pro-Israel. You quote Summer Lee, the mm -hmm. uh, Pennsylvania-Pittsburgh politician, as saying, 
From the moment I saw the ways in which the black and brown women who came in in 2018, which is the same year I came into the state house, watching the way that they had to navigate the issue, knowing the way that they had to not navigate money and politics and seeing Nina Turner, it was a clear trend to me. The trend being that she was being held to account for immoderate views on Israel and Palestine. And she said she didn't really have immoderate views. Here's her quote. It's really funny because for me as a black woman who is a progressive, Israel is not at the state level. It's not an issue that we ever had to talk about that we broached. Okay, fair enough. It literally wasn't an issue. But then when she goes on to talk about Twitter, when I hear American politicians use the refrain, Israel has the right to defend itself in response to undeniable atrocities on a marginalized population, I can't help but think of how the West has always justified indiscriminate and disproportionate force and power on weakened and marginalized people. So to me, and I'll just ask you about this aspect, when you add it all up, APAC, other donors who want their elected officials to strongly support Israel, we're not wrong to look at that constellation of, well, we don't really think about it, but in general, we're Mm -hmm. in favor of marginalized people. They weren't wrong. They were right. And it wasn't about racism if their issue was, we want the strongest defenders of Israel, fair or unfair. I think that's fair because you can use Fetterman as an example. Like Fetterman, some of the early articles about Fetterman were he has never said anything about, you know, we haven't found much that he has said about Israel-Palestine. However, he's, he's aligned with Bernie, he's aligned with the squad in, in the public imagination. And then as a result, we're concerned that he might also align on their views when it comes to Palestinian rights. And he's a white guy. Um, and so there, there definitely was a concern you know, the, any, anybody close to Bernie in the squad, and Bernie's a white guy, Jewish guy um, as well, that they would be, you know, that they would hold similar positions. Um, you, But you can also see from Summer Lee's perspective um, when she looks around and sees who is most often uh, targeted. Um, there's another, I uh, thought, interesting part in that, in that interview with her where I said, you know, a lot of other, you know, candidates moderated their views when they were facing this threat of pro-Israel money. Um, did you think about doing that? And she was very open about um, saying like, I was like, you know, does this stuff get in your head? Have you, have you kind of, you know, you sense yourself sometimes? And she's like, yes, I, that, it, it is in my head. Like, and, uh, you know, a lot of politicians wouldn't, wouldn't acknowledge that. They would just say, of course not. You know, I, yeah. <laughs> I just speak the truth all the time. Um, but she said, and not to be, she wasn't calling herself courageous. She was like, no, I didn't consider doing that because it wouldn't have worked. It's like, they were, she's like, as far as I was concerned, they were coming for me no matter what. Um, and you're, and she's like, and it's not just because of Israel. Like, I'm, I'm a progressive. I stand up for, you know, workers' rights, et cetera. And like the same, you know, the same money that is uh, funding big money, you know, APAC or DMFI organizations, you know, they get their money through the structures that she's kind of targeting through her mm-hmm. through her politics. So it's kind of a win win or lose lose. You know, from from their perspective. And so she, that that uh, those comments that you read, which were two two tweets that she posted during the Gaza War of twenty twenty one, that's basically the only thing she ever said publicly about it. And there was a really interesting response from 
somebody in Pittsburgh um, who was part of the kind of organized uh, pushback against her said, he's like, this is a really dangerous way of seeing things that, that if she really sees the oppression of Palestinians as similar to the oppression of, you know, uh, black people in America, that's extremely dangerous. And we cannot allow that, uh, which, you know, mo- if you're, I mean, I would say if you're number one or whatever, if, if you have a bright line on, we want funding for the iron dome, we don't want to stop the funding of Israel. That's a rational conclusion. I think it, it is from a pure, like political calculation. Yes. Um, the the like truth of it is uh, is another matter because actually most people would say that if you look at how palestinians are treated in the occupied territories or in in the besieged gaza it's much worse than black oh, people and here. the treating of black people in right. the you know post-civil yeah. in treating po- black people during post-civil jim crow, rights yeah. like post jim crow yeah yeah so i have two more uh er- two more questions the critique and the compliment. I don't want to end on a sour note. So here's the critique. You write about Josh Gottheimer, who's a Democrat from New Jersey, who's consistently ranked as the most conservative Democrat or the one uh, still more liberal than conservative on these uh, rankings, but often aligned with Republicans or moderates. Um, He is a uh, boogeyman, and I'm sure you and the members of the squad would say deservedly so. But you write about his appearance, you write about his height, he is short, you write about his hairline, you have a chapter called The Thumb because he is said to look like a thumb. If a conservative, not a propagandist, but someone writing from a conservative perspective, were to use similar framings and phrasings in writing about, say, Ayanna Presley, I think that person would would come in for enormous criticism. Would that be fair? I think it would be fair. I think that the level of animosity uh, that he has uh, for, you know, what he, ver- he, you know, he calls them the, the herbal tea party. Um, that, that's clever. <laughs> that's that's, <laughs> that's fun, kind of funny. I mean, th- I think the, the level of animosity kind of um, earns, earns it. And I think, I think it's not nasty. Mm-hmm. It's like, it's, me- it's meant in a kind of funny kind of way as well. Like a, I think if I think if it was just pure nastiness, okay, um, then I think it, that would be fairer. So you say, but, so in this yeah. case, you as the chronicler see yourself more as like a Mark Leibovich um, trying to yeah. capture the uh, the ca- the characters within Washington, and if they come in for some you know vivid descriptions, so be it. Yeah, and I think it's hard. It's it, it, it was it was hard to convey just how powerful the emotions are that he produces in his colleagues and so this was an effort to get at some of that but like that that it was more than just yeah some policy disagreements but it is true that if it if these kind of physical descriptions were used against most members of the squad that would be radioactive but i understand probably would be probably would be but you know then again criticizing a man and criticizing a woman for their Uh, looks is different i get that all right here's the big compliment i i don't know tell me if this is true one of i would assume one of your most read pieces over the last couple years was your chronicling of just the dysfunction and meltdowns in in NGOs about over issues of whiteness and if being on time is a white issue and just the impossibility of getting young staffers to actually work hard and take orders, right? 
Yeah, that yeah, that's correct, I think. Um, yeah. And a longer version of this with, I think, some more quotes are in the book. And what's interesting to me is, I guess this came through in your uh, article originally in The Intercept, I think. The mm -hmm. reason you wrote this is you make the point that this is getting in the way of the movement. This is getting in the mm -hmm. way of the righteous causes that these NGOs are after. And I don't know, do you, I'm sure that the people maybe in the higher, higher up in the NGOs agree with you, but have you gotten any reaction from 23 or 24 years, year olds agreeing or disagreeing with you? They, they, they well, there's, there's a couple of different responses. One is that the organizations themselves um, aren't actually, you know, they're, they're, they're total failures anyway, and that no, they've never, they've never really accomplished anything and they're not going to. So you can't, you, you can't, it's like, uh, I joked yesterday when the activists were blocking traffic in LA, it's like, how can you, how can you block traffic mm -hmm, if it doesn't right. move? So, so they, they would say the same thing. Like, this, what is the Sierra Club doing? How do you, how do you stop the Sierra Club from accomplishing its mission when it has, it's not even clear what it's doing? So uh, who are we talking about? We're talking about groups like the Sierra Club. Who else? Uh, Sierra Club, uh, abortion rights groups, um, civil rights groups, um, everything from the Audubon Society to, you know, anybody mm -hmm. with a you know, big staff with a mission in Washington. The other um, response would be, uh, yes, this is true um, that it is producing extreme dysfunction, but that's the fault of the management. Um, that's the fault of um, out of touch, um, ma you know, managers and executives who, you know, uh, deserve blame for this a variety of different things. And I actually I think that th they are correct on some of that. Like I think that. Um, a lot of the leaders of these uh, these nonprofits kind of shirked their responsibility to lead out of a fear that they were going to uh, face too much blowback for making decisions that they knew were actually necessary. And so, in order to kind of protect their own positions, they they allowed dysfunction to fester and sacrificed the the mission of the organization. Um, so I think. There, there is, there's a lot of blame to go around, and, and you've seen some organizations, you know, where there have been, you know, difficult decisions made by um, leaders, and the result is some, uh, is you know, some uh, dysfunction in the short term, but then you know, functionality in the, in the long term. Yeah, you can't, you can't really manage a staff if they firmly believe that being on time is just a, just a relic of whiteness. That, that doesn't work. Yeah. So I am seeing, but I don't travel maybe in the circles in which you travel and report, that I am seeing and hearing the assertion that we're past the time of the greatest, let's call it surus, that you documented, where every NGO was riven by every claim of promptness being whiteness, or a time when any claim of racism was enough to paralyze a big institution. We're past that, or we're moving past that, is what is asserted are you seeing that well, i think we were seeing it in progressive spaces um and i think we i think we are um i think that too many people have been um targeted with kind of bad faith attacks and and as a result are no longer willing to kind of support some of those when they see them elsewhere uh, i think elon musk's um 
kind of blowing up of Twitter probably did, you know, I mean, it's not blown up, uh, but a lot of the left and liberals, you know, have moved away from it. Mm-hmm. And that was a, that was a real space of w- what you could uh, positively call accountability, uh, what yeah. you could negatively call pylons mm-hmm. and it's kind of uh denuding of its power like did like did what elon musk was try- trying to do like or, or at least in that direction you're you are seeing a lot of internal fights now in, in progressive organizations over the question of gaza um in a similar way to the the uh the george floyd era where you're a lot of organization a lot of staff and organizations are saying this is a absolutely existential moral question that we're facing and our organization needs to do everything we can you know to stop this uh genocide in in gaza and a lot of leaders saying well that's not you know we're the audubon society or whatever like that's not that's not we're doing and it's it's and it's creating a lot of turmoil but that's different um i think than the the broader question of the arc of quote-unquote cancel culture The name of the book is The Squad, AOC and the Hope of a Political Revolution. It was written by Ryan Grimm, who is the Intercept's Washington Bureau Chief and the co-host of CounterPoints. Thank you, Ryan. No, thank you, Mike. And now the spiel. Yesterday, we played remarks from the head of the Illinois chapter of the NAACP, Tracy Haley. She was frustrated by the influx of migrants in her state, in the state's biggest city, Chicago. And this was expressed by another participant on a Zoom call, and she agreed. I'll play you more of her remarks than I did yesterday. And we're seeing families on the street, and we're like, oh my God, we're not used to seeing families on the streets. But Black people have been on the streets forever and ever, and nobody cares because they say that we're drug addicts. We got mental health issues. But these immigrants have come over here. They've been raping people. They've been breaking into homes. They're like savages as well. They don't speak the language, and they look at us like we were crazy because we were the only people in America who were brought over here against our wills and were slaves sold into slavery, but everybody else who comes over here, we're so kind, we're so friendly, you need some clothes, you need a place to stay, we're going to make it happen. So brother, I feel your pain, I'm right there with you. I will not continue to play her remarks, because pretty soon after this, she uses the N-word, which I suppose is her right. But my point in highlighting the remarks is to show how much this issue, transporting immigrants from Texas to Illinois, especially Chicago, is tearing apart the city of Chicago. I can play you community meeting after community meeting, so I will. Here's comments from a discussion to transform the West Side's Amundsen Park Fieldhouse into a migrant shelter. Because, see, I want Mayor Brandon Johnson to understand that you're selling us out for people who can't vote for you. We are the voters. We stood with you. And now you stand and you slap us in the face. I tell you what, tomorrow we're going to punch you in the face at the polling places. We won't stand for this. We say no. 
There was no election the next day, but message sent the proposed shelter didn't take over the field house, but plans to go forward in a different neighborhood, Brighton Park, played out like this. We are the person live in the community. Why? We don't know about that. Brighton Park is not big enough for all these people. That from NBC Chicago, the older woman there, Julia Ramirez, and her aide were attacked during a protest. How about over in Roseland? Uncompassionate or whatever. But the thing that's such a non-problem to this day is why are we doing all of this for these set of immigrants when the Haitians came over Like that woman, all the Chicagoans I saw protesting and at community meetings who were very impassioned were also compassionate or whatever. And everyone you will hear is a person of color. Almost everyone I saw in all the news clips I watched and I watched, I don't know, 50 or 60, were black or brown or Asian. Here's a black man objecting to placing migrants in a community college in his neighborhood. When do citizens of the United States of America come first? And here is Daisy Sierra speaking at a Brighton Park meeting a month ago. And second of all, there's been so much violence, so much violence going on in the Brighton Park neighborhood. I myself had been um, a victim of it. You know what I'm saying? There's so many people who've been robbed at gunpoint. There's so many people who've been kidnapped. And if you add these new people here, how are we going to know that they're not criminals? You know what I'm saying? We also need resources. We need mental health. We need programs for the seniors. We need more programs for the youth. If we had more programs for the youth, there wouldn't be so much crime out there. Here's local resident Rebecca Martinez, same meeting. You know, I think it's not fair that they're going to get handed to this, all that to them easily. While there have been people who have worked and been here their whole lives and can't even get a license. Like, it's just that simple. And to me, it seems ridiculous that we can't even get that. And, and then even though, yes, they're, they're maybe fleeing their country for whatever reason, I get it, but they should come here and want to work. Some of them don't, don't even want to work. Some of them have been offered jobs that they don't want to work. It's like, okay, so what did you come here? Because you were going to give you money? How's that fair to us? Like- the emotions expressed weren't only anger. There's sorrow in Chicago. This Sunday, a five-year-old migrant boy died of illness while being housed in a temporary shelter. The capacity of Chicago as a sanctuary city is being questioned. It's even being voted on in the city council. Now, they did retain that status by a vote of 31 to 16. However, Chicago has spent a million dollars to turn one site into a tent camp, but discontinued efforts over environmental concerns. And there is absolutely no solution to all of this. Though cries of, we are at capacity, are resonating through the city. And I have no solution either. Only this observation. Governor Abbott of Texas, who has no solution either, nothing constitutional anyway, sadly to say, played it pretty craftily. His decision to ship migrants to Illinois demonstrates that when one is stymied by policy, one can always play politics. And he did play them well. He made northern cities feel his frustration and the frustration of the border states. He didn't demonstrate a way forward, but he offered tens of thousands of data points that expose the weakness of easily reach for arguments in this debate. David Leonhardt of the New York Times in his new book summarizes the democratic policy on immigration as more is better, less is racist. Now, there are many Democrats working hard to solve the problem. Democratic solutions over the past decades in Congress have been hampered by Republican intractability more than the other way around. But overall, more is better. 
less is racist is how many voters see this issue. Often, how many in the media cover this issue. And racist is such an easy cudgel to reach for, but you can see how inaccurate it is, or rather you can hear it. When the concerns come from all the Chicagoans you heard from, none were white and they weren't cherry-picked to make that point. That's exactly representative of the demographics of those who were concerned and those concerned transcend all ethnicities. What Governor Abbott did was he spread the pain. His reasons were cynical, the migrants were pawns, but at least now we can see that on this issue, there aren't really any easy solutions, and it is also true that there should be no simple dismissals of the concerns of citizens of every state, city, color, and creed. And that's it for today's show. Corey War is the GIST producer. Joel Patterson's the GIST senior producer. Michelle Pesca is in charge of special projects for Peachfish Productions. To advertise on the GIST, go to advertisecast.com slash the GIST. Do Peru. G Peru do Peru. And thanks for listening.